Good morning. I am Chris Ginchier. I'm a pastor in the North Texas Presbytery, and uh, I was here about a month ago uh, preaching with you guys. So thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here again. Um, the passage we're going to be preaching from and reading from today is just a continuation in John's gospel. So we ended last time with John 1, 1 through 18, and John opens up this gospel with a pretty impressive picture of who Jesus is. And what he's going to do is continue that introduction of who Jesus is, and in particular, what it takes to follow him. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 19, or you can just follow along with what's on the screens as I read today's passage. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed... I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God. 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 Heavenly Father, thank you for a time to gather together once again in your presence to hear from you and your word. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations and responses of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I have to admit, I'm recovering from a case of bronchitis, so my water bottle is extra big today. This passage is uh, an interesting one. It's a long passage, and I'm just going to go ahead and confess right now, I'm going to reference a lot of other passages today, because there's so much packed in John's introduction of John the Baptist and what it means for what it takes to follow Jesus, because that is what John is telling us here. And He's telling us this not because he's trying to set up some kind of lofty standard that we have to check boxes and agree to and meet before we can follow Jesus. You see, John's writing everything in this gospel, what he says in John chapter 20. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, in this passage, John, the disciple, is continuing the introduction, the biography of Jesus, by introducing us to another John, John the Baptist. So that might get confusing today. I'm going to do my best to refer to each John accordingly as John the disciple who's writing and recounting this, and John the Baptist who he's talking about. But this John the Baptist is an interesting character. At this time in life and ministry, he was a polarizing figure. He was loved and revered by some, predominantly the poor, the working class, the spiritually hungry of Israel, and he was hated and despised by others, largely the elite, the powerful, and you might call them the spiritually complacent. In many ways, he'd make for a great political party primary candidate, wouldn't he? He's loved by some, hated by others. He forced you to take a side and take a stance enough to draw a large base of support and anger the other side and them over there. But you see, John the Baptist wasn't a political figure, at least not in our current sense of the word. But he was a figure of great importance. And John the disciple uses John the Baptist to help us see Jesus and what it takes to follow him. Here's the first thing he shows us. It takes confident humility to follow Jesus. See, the setting here is there are some investigators that were sent to find out about John the Baptist. In verse 22, they just come out and say it. They're they're frustrated with his answers, and they say, finally, just who are you? We have to give a report to the people who sent us. So tell us, who are you? And he starts off by answering the question they didn't ask, but everyone assumed. John the Baptist answers, well, I'll start with who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. 
See, the Messiah was a figure that all of Israel was expecting to come, to come into their world and to actually right every wrong, put away every enemy, and restore Israel's future. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping for. You look back in Micah chapter 5 too. You don't have to turn. You can just reference this. But this is one of their hopes for the Messiah. Micah 5 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. They expected a ruler in Israel. They also expected a warring king. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. They expected a warring king. They also expected a conquering hero. Isaiah 61, 1 through 7 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. They will make Israel great again. This is what Isaiah is saying the promised Messiah will do. This fed their expectations of a conquering hero, a warring king, a ruler in Israel. In Isaiah 9, 6, says, even a political leader. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This was their collective hope and expectation that when the Messiah comes, he will conquer all of their enemies and restore all of their fortunes. And John the Baptist just comes out and says, I'm not him. That's not me. I'm not the Messiah. So they say, okay, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And John says, no, I'm not Elijah. But why would they ask that question? Like, how do you jump from Messiah to Elijah? Well, Malachi 3.1 in chapter 4, verse 5 says, the people expected Elijah to return before the great day of the Lord. Malachi, uh, God through Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, he clarifies it. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So it's natural that they would think you're not the Messiah. Are you at least Elijah, the one who's going to come before the Messiah comes? Now, at this time, John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. What's funny, though, is Jesus in Matthew 17, verse 12, would actually say that John the Baptist was, in fact, the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. See, John the Baptist, at this point in time, 
He has confidence to act the way he does, to answer the way that he does, but he also has enough humility to not think of himself too highly. He doesn't think of himself this way yet, that he is the John, the, that he is the Elijah who is going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah, at least not enough to take credit for it. He doesn't see himself in this way yet. So the investigators go down the line. You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Now, this is one that tends to escape a lot of us who have read the Bible and studied it. But you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is in the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it says in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. He will be from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. What they're doing is they're going through all their Old Testament scriptures, all their Bible knowledge, all their theology and all their history, and they're trying to make sense of this guy, John the Baptist. You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. Certainly, you're at least the prophet Moses talked about. And John the Baptist's answer to all of these is no. I'm, I don't think of myself as any of those guys. Then he starts to turn positive, and he says, but I am this. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He does see himself as a voice, somebody who can speak and can prepare the way. He also says, I am one baptizing with water, but not the Holy Spirit, not something greater than that. You see, the baptism with water was a ministry of repentance and preparation. Baptism at this time was a symbolic gesture to signify repentance, a, a change of heart and a change of mind that led to a change of behavior and to return to God. It was mostly used for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism as a sign to say, I am renouncing one way of life and endeavoring to live a new way. But here John is baptizing Israelites people who are already considered the people of God, people who have a long history with God. And yet the same need for repentance and preparation was present among them. John is here baptizing them, bringing them into a change of heart, mind, and behavior in preparation for something greater that is to come. But perhaps the most interesting detail about this is what John ends this section with in verse 28. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Across the Jordan would mean the wilderness. So it has the echoes of all these promises of a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. But do you know what else happened across the Jordan in Israel's history? It was the river they crossed when they entered the promised land. It was the barrier separating them from what God had done in history and what God had promised to do for their future. It was the place they had to cross after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that only happened after God's miraculous redemption of them out of Egypt and the Exodus after they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It was a significant spot to say, I'm going over there across the Jordan to baptize a people who are preparing themselves for God's coming future. John is preparing God's people for a new thing God was doing in their midst, a new exodus and a new promise to be fulfilled. The last thing John says about his 
his ministry, his identity with humble confidence is he's not worthy to untie the sandal of the one who is to come. Now, I don't know about you, but I was on a a basketball team, JV and varsity, when I was in high school. Um, My sophomore year through my senior year, my freshman year, I didn't make any team. Uh, I was that good. They said, you don't deserve to be on this team. You're destined for something greater, which meant I was the ball boy and the water boy and the statistician and the guy who wrapped the superstar's ankles before the game. I was the servant who would have to help take off the guy's shoe and wrap it up in tape so he wouldn't break his ankles because they were weak. That was my humbled position as a freshman. I came back and I started JV and I dressed varsity my sophomore year because I thought I was better than that. And really, I just wanted to play. John the Baptist here says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the guy who's going to come after me. This was a a position of the lowliest of low servant. In other words, there was a ranking of service you could provide another person. And on the lowest rung of that totem pole was washing feet, removing sandals. And John the Baptist is here saying, listen, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am a voice crying in the wilderness. I am preparing a people for God's new thing, and I'm also not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one who is to come. John the Baptist tells us the first thing we have to understand of what it takes to follow Jesus is to have a humble confidence. Confidence to know that we are serving a purpose, a place in God's plan, and being able to boldly live into that, and yet not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. He understood he was occupying a place of great significance in the history of God's people, but it was tempered, it was counterbalanced by the greatness of one yet to come. He was anticipating and preparing for the arrival of one who is greater. This takes us to the second thing. The first is a confident humility. The second is a bold profession. Profession just means a declared belief. It's something that you not only know internally, but you proclaim verbally. You you defend your position. You defend your belief. You proclaim something boldly. And this is what John has to claim. John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, he didn't just see another person to be baptized. He saw a perfect sacrifice that was going to make atonement. You see, the the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world harkens back to the Old Testament yet again, where in Exodus 11 through 12, God's people are told, celebrate God's deliverance of you. You see, when they were slaves in Egypt, God had to come to Pharaoh through Moses and say, let my people go that they may go out and worship me. And Pharaoh, if you know the story, said, no, I'm not going to do it. So God, through Moses, gives a series of unfortunate events, ten. We call them ten plagues that were to come upon all of Egypt. And the last one, the the final one, the one that would finally break Pharaoh's back, was called the plague of the firstborn son. And what this meant was that God was going to send an angel over all of Egypt and actually put to death the firstborn son of every household. But he told Israelites... He told them, 
How you escape this is by taking a lamb, offering it as a sacrifice, and then taking its blood and pouring it over the doorposts of your home. That way my angel knows to pass over your home and to not inflict the the penalty, the plague that I'm going to unleash on this land. That was what finally made Pharaoh relent when he finally lost something so precious and so dear to him that he couldn't ignore God anymore. And he finally just let up and said, fine, go, be gone, be out of here. And so Israel left Egypt. Now Pharaoh would change his mind. He would go after Israel. He would pursue them with the full might of his army. And God would have to deliver his people through the Red Sea where they would walk on dry land, and as Pharaoh and his army pursued, the sea would come crashing down upon them. It was yet another sign that says we cannot escape God's judgment. We can only escape it through the means that he provides. This Passover was meant to be celebrated every single year by Israel. And we read in Leviticus 16, verse 20, how that was to happen. You were to bring a sacrifice to make atonement for your family and for your household. But the high priest would have to go, and he would have to make atonement for himself. And then he'd have to make atonement for the people. And how he would do that was he would bring two perfect offerings. In the first one, he would have to sacrifice and slaughter and take the blood of that animal and actually sprinkle it over the mercy seat in the tabernacle. He would have to enact in God's holy place what had happened in the Passover. And then the priest would take the blood from that animal and place both hands on the the other offering and the other sacrifice. And it was meant to impose all the sin of all the people onto this one sacrificial lamb. And that lamb was to be sent out into the wilderness, away from where God's people and God's presence dwelled. This was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the lamb that we provide for ourselves, to make atonement, but the one that God would provide for his people to actually be atoned, to be restored to a relationship with God. When he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John is finally seeing that the Lamb God would provide is not just a mere animal. It's actually the perfect sacrifice. He would have known this just from reading Isaiah 53. And if you'll permit me, I want to read the whole chapter. This is Isaiah, one of the great prophets who was looking and and speaking of what God was going to do for his people. And this is what he says in chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look in him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You get the sense we're talking about a man you could barely look at. Because there was nothing about him that that necessarily drew us to him at this stage. But then Isaiah 53 goes on. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous or to be atoned. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 takes all of the Old Testament signs and symbols and sacrifices and says these are all going to collapse into one person, God's chosen holy servant. You see, all the expectations of the Messiah for a, a conquering, warring, king, ruler, hero. And Isaiah 53 says, that hero is going to come first as a lamb. And he's going to be so stricken and smitten, you're not even going to want to look at him. He's going to be so despised to your sight that you're going to miss him. But don't you realize that's the lamb that takes away your sin and makes atonement possible for you to live with God yet again? This is part of John the Baptist's bold profession. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the one, the suffering servant Isaiah talks about, that is coming my way. So how did John come to this bold profession of faith? I think we can think of three things. That may have helped John with this. One would just be a study of the scriptures. Like we just read all of the passages in the Old Testament. He could go back as far as Isaiah 7.14. And say, and from it shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. That's not right. I got the wrong one. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. John the Baptist would have known this because he was actually the cousin of Jesus born of Mary. And John would have known that Mary, she got pregnant by a series of unusual circumstances. Sounds a little bit like Isaiah 7, 14. But he also would have got this from the stories he was told, even as a kid, as an adult growing up. Luke 1, 13 through 17. 
talks about how the, the birth of John the Baptist was coming about. You see, the birth of Jesus was to come through a virgin. The birth of John the Baptist was to come from a couple who were well beyond childbearing years. Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth were without child. They had been praying. That was one of their great prayers, one of their great sorrows and anguishes, that they had no children. But God comes to them in Luke 1, verses 13 through 17, and says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah was one of the high priests. He knew God's promises. He knew that God could do great things. He had been praying for this. And then God comes to him and says, you will bear a child. And he will do great and wonderful things. He grew up with some of these stories of his own life, his own history, his own family. His own personal study, the stories he grew up with. But there's also just, and this is going to be maybe a little un-Presbyterian-like. There was also just a sense that John the Baptist had. We could call it a personal encounter or, or intuition. Notice what he says in verse 33. When he says, I myself did not know him. Even with all the study, even with all the stories, even with all the information he had gleaned and gathered. He says in verse 33, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John Baptist was in the wilderness because God just told him to go do that. Whether he did that audibly, whether he did that through a dream or a vision, or whether he just had a sense that this is what God wants me to do, John was able to take all his study, all the stories that had come before him, and even his sense of a personal experience with God to say, this is what God has called me to do. This is where all the threads start to connect here. What have you come to believe about God through your own personal study of the scriptures? What have you come to believe about God through the stories that have been passed down through generations, whether through your family or just through history? What's your own sense and intuition of God's leading in your life? These are the things that will lead you to a bold profession of who Jesus is and what it takes to follow him. The third thing we see here about what it takes to follow Jesus is a reasonable faith. John 1, 35 through 51 is just a long story of really three days worth of people talking about Jesus and other people following Jesus. We see the first thing that happens is John the Baptist is literally talking to two of his disciples and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And guess what happens? John the Baptist's disciple numbers shrink. His church goes down in size. He sees two people leave him to go follow Jesus, and I don't think he was unhappy with that. 
It took the borrowed trust of another person for these two disciples to say, if that's what my guy, John the Baptist, says and thinks, I've got to pay attention to this guy over here. And you notice that these two men just start following Jesus. These would be Andrew, we know by name, and the other one we don't know by name, but let me give you a little hint. We think it's John who is actually writing this gospel. Because nowhere in any of this gospel does John refer to himself or give his name away. He's always the silent one, the behind-the-scenes guy. And it just strikes me as funny that in this whole passage, he's ready to name drop everybody else except this one disciple who chooses to follow with Philip or Andrew. Jesus accepts John and Andrew following him, but he invites them into a process of discovery and relationship. Notice he doesn't give them a test to see what they believe about him. He doesn't say, you have to believe everything John the Baptist believes about me. All you know is what he just said right now. So, he asked them, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, we just want to know where you're staying. Like, we want to follow you now. And he says, okay, well, come on, and you will see. A reasonable faith may borrow authority from a trusted source, but it's also a process of discovery and relationship. Next, we read about Andrew and, and Philip. Two guys who all they know so far is what John the Baptist has said. They've been following Jesus for a couple of days. They go off and they just start telling people about him. They had a personal enthusiasm that was really about as deep as, I don't know, a puddle. I mean, they didn't have a lot of wealth of experience with Jesus. But they knew they had something and they weren't shy about telling other people about it. They had excitement over the prospect of who Jesus might be. And I have to say, I got convicted because, I don't know, I tend to look at very enthusiastic people with a sense of skepticism. Right? How can you be so joyful? How can you be so sure? How can you be so confident? And yet, it seems to work for Andrew. It seems to work for Philip. They know just enough to get other people excited and bring them along for the journey. We read about Simon, who would later become Peter, and all he had was a bit of a piqued curiosity. I mean, his brother comes to him and says, hey, we found the Messiah, and Peter's like, okay, let, let me go check this out. And as he comes, Jesus will later say, your piqued curiosity is going to lead to a total change of identity. You're coming to me as, as, you're coming to me as Simon, you're going to leave as Cephas or Peter. And then we read about Nathaniel. The optimistic skeptic, the one who asks questions, the one who has doubt, the guy I tend to relate with a little bit more. The guy who says, wait, that Jesus? The, the son of Mary and we think Joseph from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He doesn't have the right schooling, the right education, the right pedigree. Nathaniel's the typical skeptic, and yet... He doesn't shy away from going to check out Jesus. He doesn't let his skepticism be the final verdict and the final word. He goes and he checks out Jesus and Jesus just completely changes his whole paradigm. He does it by affirming who Nathaniel is, not by, not by putting down his questions and his skepticism. He says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. 
You don't take things at face value. You, you question, you ponder, you actually study this stuff. You are a true Israelite. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, wait, wait till you catch a load of this one. I saw you underneath the fig tree before you came here. And Nathaniel's like, no one could know that. No one could know that except someone who is actually God. And so Nathaniel says, okay, I believe now. And Jesus just says, you believe because I told you a parlor trick? Because I told you I could see you under a fig tree? You haven't seen anything yet. You're going to see the heavens opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That was goes back to the Old Testament. That's where Jacob would fall asleep after he was wrestling with God and he would see this great vision of a, a, the heavens opened up and a stairway, not a stairway to heaven, but a stairway from heaven coming down and the angels coming up back and forth between God's heaven and our reality. And Jesus is here saying, just wait till you see that, Nathaniel. This is what Jesus does. He invites them to faith, which is a commitment to follow and trust, not to understand everything. He responds to each of them. And if you look at his responses, it makes for a very interesting sequence, doesn't it? A sequence that I think we're all confronted with and what it takes to follow Jesus. He asks us, what are you seeking? What is driving you? What is it you want most in this life? What motivates you? Jesus says, if, if you want to know where that finds its fulfillment, come and you will see. Follow me. Follow me, the one who sees you. Who sees you as you are this, but you shall become someone new. The one who says, I know you, and soon you will come to know me. Jesus invites us to follow him and start wherever we are. But he promises not to leave us there. He promises to take us on a journey. If we will by faith just commit and trust him every step of the way. His call to them is the same as it is to us. Come and you will see. That's what he calls all of his disciples in any day and any age. To come and see him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, it is reliable, and it points to you in all things. Help us to make sense of the things we've studied, the stories we've heard, and the sense that you are speaking to us even now. Lead us to a place where we trust and follow you by faith. Father, even as we prepare to receive you in communion. Let this be a sign of the communion and the fellowship and the relationship we have with you. Strengthen us as we take our next step with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.